0: Welcome back to another episode of the EMS on air podcast. I'm Jeff Lassers, and I'll be your host. I'm a professional firefighter, paramedic, EMS instructor, content creator, and podcast host. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Robert Dunn, who is the EMS medical director for the Detroit Fire Department, as well as the Detroit East Medical Control Authority. Dr. Dunn is here to describe why fire departments and EMS agencies should be prepared to treat patients with smoke inhalation injuries. Specifically, Dr. Dunn is here to put a spotlight on the toxic twins, cyanide and carbon monoxide, which are two major contributors to the injury and death of smoke inhalation patients. Over the past 50 years or so, there has been a tremendous shift in the materials used to produce the common items found in most American homes. Specifically, plastics and other petroleum-based products have become the predominant material used in most household items. Unfortunately, synthetic products burn much hotter and faster than traditional household items. The combustion of these materials radically increases the rate of heat, smoke, and fire growth in a structure fire, while simultaneously decreasing the chances of any occupant surviving. Bottom line, house fires burn hotter and faster and produce more deadly chemicals than they did 50 or even 60 years ago. During this episode, Dr. Dunn will describe why fire departments and EMS agencies should be prepared to treat patients with smoke inhalation. In addition, Doc will describe the impact of cyanide and carbon monoxide on the human body. Then, he will list and describe the assessment and treatment priorities for smoke inhalation injuries. Finally, Dr. Dunn will describe the benefits of hydroxycobalamine for patients with signs and symptoms of cyanide toxicity. This turned out to be a great episode that gave me a lot to consider in my everyday practice, and I hope you experience the same value. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, and episode ideas to the EMS On Air podcast team by email at jeff, that's G-E-O-F-F, at emsonair.com. Follow us on Instagram at EMS On Air. Like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please, whatever podcast platform you use, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you. And enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, Doc. How are you? I'm all right. How you doing, Jeff? Nice to be here. Thank you for joining me today. Why don't you kick off? Tell everybody who you are, what you do, and where you do it.
1: My name is Robert Dunn. I am the medical director for the Detroit Fire Department and what's called the Detroit East Medical Control Authority, which is the supervisory medical control uh, for Detroit and the close-in East Side Wayne County suburbs.
0: Well, you're here to talk about something very specific, smoke inhalation injuries and some of the things that we need to really look for and be prepared for in the field. So why does fire and EMS need to be prepared to treat smoke inhalation injuries?
1: Smoke inhalation and the injuries from the products of combustion are really one of those things that are like other things we treat in emergency medicine and EMS. They're High risk, high consequence, but relatively low frequency. Even in a large city where we have a fair number of structure fires, in Detroit we have 50 to 60 structure fires a week, not every fire involves a casualty, not everybody gets exposed to smoke, we don't always have firefighters getting injured, thankfully. But when it happens, we need to know how to take care of it and we need to know the right things to do, just like we do for other high risk, low frequency events in emergency care.
0: So it seems to me that there's also this problem related to uh, we're not fighting the same fires that we're used to 20, 30, 40 years ago.
1: Right. Even though we've made a lot of progress on fire prevention, improving how we fight fires, preventing fires, creating early warning with smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors, what we've seen is a change in the materials that are actually being burned during a fire. So traditionally, We're dealing with wood, often natural fiber products and things that burned. They certainly combusted, but they often smoldered. They didn't burn as fast. And we've moved. I think everyone can look around their own house or their office or wherever they are and see that everything is plastic, right? It's synthetics. It's composite materials, even making things like countertops and doors and cabinetry. And those burn very differently. They can burn hotter. They create different products of combustion, than natural fibers and wood products do
0: so what are the primary causes of the fire related injuries and deaths knowing that there's a bigger dose of poisonous gas and smoke being created in these fires Right. I think that's
1: something that is an important take-home message. When people think about fires, you know, as an emergency care provider and EMS providers, we often think about the burns. But when we really look at what's killing people, it's the inhalation injuries, sometimes with no burns and sometimes with burns. So sometimes we're taking care of a burn and an inhalation injury together. But when we look at what's contributing to deaths, it's those inhaled products of combustion. So when we think of all the things that can happen to somebody – We want to be sure that we're doing that right assessment, right? We're worried about what's happening to the airway from superheated gases, airway burns, facial burns, and what actually got inhaled. We all are familiar with carbon monoxide, but also cyanide is an incredibly important part of burning plastics. So burning plastics produce cyanide and cyanide-like compounds that get inhaled, and that leads to cyanide poisoning in many inhalation injuries. So let me talk about a couple of cases. I think that's sometimes a good way to talk about any kind of high-risk, low-frequency event is talk about some actual patients that were cared for. So the first case I want to talk about is a case of a firefighter. This is from a publicly available after-action report, and we've actually had some discussions with people from the department that this was involved in so that we can share this information to help make it safer for everybody. So a fire captain was fighting a structure fire. There was a floor collapse, ended up in the basement, called a mayday. Efforts were rapidly undertaken to get him out of there. After about seven minutes, he was extracted That was 15 minutes total past the time that he called for help, and he was already in cardiac arrest. His mask had been knocked off. He had had a fair amount of smoke inhalation, not significant burns. CPR, advanced life support care, was immediately available, and that was started. The patient had maximal resuscitative efforts, went to the hospital, got some additional care at the hospital, and ultimately died of his inhalation injury-related cardiac arrest the after-action report showed that there was some concern about how long it took to get the cyanide antidote kit into them. It's always hard to tell, right? When you're looking back at things, what we really look at in any kind of death is, how could we have improved our care? Would that affect outcome? Not always, right? We review these things all the time, and there's things we can't change in outcome but let's give the opportunity in the future. And one of the recommendations was to have cyanide antidote kits immediately available on the fire ground rather than getting treated later, either by arrival of an ambulance that brought it or after the patient gets transported to a hospital. What we're really trying to do is take evidence and apply it, right? One of the things that's always been a critique of emergency care in general is is that so many of the things that we do we kind of had to do right the person's right in front of you you're taking care of things and it's difficult to do research often on emergency conditions because you know they happen quickly there's you know there's not the ability to get some of the consent and some of these concerns so the study of emergency conditions is something that has taken a long time and there is now a body of evidence on treating smoke inhalation and toxicity from products of combustion. So we want to be doing an evidence-based practice all the time, right? That evidence is out there. We need to figure out how to transfer that knowledge so that we all have learned it and that we've shared it. We've developed policies and protocols and come up with you know systems of care that make those things actually work.
0: And you can't account for the emotional variable in those situations, which is going to affect your decision-making process. So the sooner that we create an automatic response to these situations, when somebody's in cardiac arrest, I'm already thinking Epi. When I'm in cardiac arrest around smoke inhalation, I got to start thinking cyanide kits. So it's one of those things to put into autopilot into our system rather than going with the old stuff.
1: Right. It's almost like a muscle memory thing, right? You know, we talk about that, you know, fast you know fast and slow responses and especially when it's a colleague right sometimes our our vision is clouded our judgment is clouded we're we're thinking we we go back to old ways of thinking right i mean one of the things that we've learned over and over and it's always hard to learn lessons over and over but we we do do that is that for so many conditions just taking the person to the hospital is actually detrimental right, that we really need to provide that frontline care and do it right at the scene. The other thing that we've learned, particularly when you get to someone's in cardiac arrest from any non-traumatic cause of cardiac arrest, is that we're often providing better care at the scene. EMS agencies and fire-based EMS agencies typically do a much better job of monitoring their CPR quality using waveform capnography, using using tools, using medications appropriately than what we look at when we actually look at what happens when the patient gets to the hospital.
0: So it's certainly a really vital component of that healthcare continuum.
1: And I like to think of the inhalation injury as one of those subsets of cardiac arrest care. If the patient actually gets to the point of arresting, we've got some different priorities if what caused the cardiac arrest was an inhalation injury just like if someone has a cardiac arrest and they're a dialysis patient, we're automatically thinking a little bit differently. We should be doing that for inhalation injury as well. So I wanted to talk about a civilian taken out of a fire, and this is from a Detroit fire. This is a 50-year-old female who initially had some first-degree burns to her face, had some mild inhalation injury, some soot in her mouth, but was awake, talking, not having any neurological symptoms, classical coma scale 15, and was brought to the hospital, observed in the hospital, and subsequently had a deteriorating mental status, requiring intubation, unable to protect the airway, increasing airway swelling, and was treated for Toxicities of inhalation injury, oxygen for the carbon monoxide, and the cyanide antidote kit in the hospital ultimately did well and was discharged from the hospital. But this also shows something that we need to always be considering in these patients is that even a patient that looks pretty good, and maybe we are not starting out initial emergent treatment for them, we need to keep an eye on that patient. And depending on where you're coming from and what your transport times after your initial stabilization. This could have easily happened in the ambulance.
0: Right. So it's not as simple as you get inhalation injuries. You're going to be going down that priority one. It's obvious. You got to innovate. There's some patients you're like, well, I might have to innovate soon <laughs> or I'm on that bubble. You're kind of like hovering over them, not really doing too much. Sometimes it's much more obvious what to do when they need immediate care in their priority one. That priority two really does make you wonder, is this just monitoring and moving or is this like I got to do something?
1: And I think when we're always doing education, we're talking about reassessment. It's so important mm-hmm. in here, that, that ongoing reassessment and really looking for subtle things.
0: So let's get into some of those subtle things and focus on the toxic twins and what they do to the body. So how does the body react to breathing in CO and CN?
1: So I love the term toxic twins. We think about carbon monoxide all the time. We see it at the beginning of the heating season here in cold Michigan. As soon as those cold nights start and people fire up their furnace and, you know, didn't realize there was something wrong or a vent blocked and they end up with CO toxicity. What we know is that carbon monoxide binds tightly to our hemoglobin, so we can't deliver oxygen to the tissues. And then cyanide, this is why we like to think of them as the toxic twins. They're both products of combustion. They're both something you're getting exposed to in a fire. They both can cause fairly similar symptoms because really one of them is preventing oxygen from being delivered, the carbon monoxide, and the cyanide is preventing the oxygen from being utilized. So Boy, this this is a double whammy, right? This is something we really want to treat and aggressively move forward on taking care of this patient.
0: They're like a bad guy tag team champion. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They like to synergize off each other and cause some real problems there.
1: Right, and even fairly low doses can cause some symptoms early on for patients
0: let's talk about some of those symptoms cover those this range it's not as easy as you encounter these chemicals like in a in like a bond movie and all of a sudden you're out right there's like a no you could you could go through a whole spectrum cover those some of those for sure
1: i mean there is a dose dependent response sure, right so somebody sure. with a very high exposure to carbon monoxide and or right. cyanide could lead to immediate arrest right the case we were talking about about the firefighter he was overcome very quickly right he was in arrest he was probably sucking seven in superheated
0: gases there's a lot involved absolutely but like you're saying it's dose and duration right absolutely So how much co and cyanide and you know goodness knows what else is in that smoke beyond that uh but uh it's also how much time and how much you actually took in
1: exactly and really what we're looking at when we're talking about Toxicity is that neurotoxicity. The brain is the most sensitive thing. And I think when we're talking about people who have single CO exposure from a heating appliance or a poorly vented products of combustion, you know, from a combustion engine, you're asking the patient, do they have a headache? Do they feel nauseated? Do they feel dizzy? Cyanide is really very similar to that, right? It's these neurologic symptoms headache, nausea, feeling dizzy, feeling short of breath. Feeling anxious, right, that patient, right, we always tell our medics if your patient tells you, boy, I think I'm going to die, you should, you you know, you should be getting a little bit more concerned. Um, That feeling of doom is definitely something that comes from not being able to deliver oxygen to the tissues. So when we're thinking about this and we're doing that initial assessment and then we're reassessing a patient who's awake and talking to us, we're always going to be asking about those neurologic symptoms, And then when a patient deteriorates, we see a decreased level of consciousness to the point where they're confused, they can't answer questions, they're just kind of making garbled speech, and they're not able to tell you what's going on to the point where they actually become
0: unconscious. What I'm getting from all the spectrum of signs and symptoms from the toxic twins that they can produce, not all cyanide and CO toxicity patients will go unconscious.
1: (laughs) That's exactly right. And I think someone who's unconscious in respiratory distress or in cardiac or in cardiac arrest is someone that you know, for lack of a better way to say it, is relatively easier to treat, right? Mm-hmm. That's something we we do have maybe some automatic initial responses. There's maybe a few things we need to tweak in how we respond to that when we know there was an inhalation injury involved in the patient, but it's easier, right? But that patient who is awake, that woman that we gave the example of, she's awake, she has some obvious soot in her mouth, she doesn't have strider, she's still talking, she's got a GCS of 15, but she's at high risk of deteriorating because Mm -hmm. as the body can't utilize that oxygen, it slowly gets worse. And at the same time, you get that, if you will, a triple whammy of, superheated gas in your airway the next thing you know the airway is going to swell closed you're not going to even be able to deliver air exchange
0: let's get into that a little bit deeper what are the assessment and treatment priorities for these smoke inhalation injury patients
1: So the first thing is, you know, we talked about that, that fast and slow thinking, you know, so there's some autopilot that's good, there's some autopilot that's bad, right? So we don't want to approach every cardiac arrest thinking, oh, it's the same set of things, everything we're we're focused on ventricular fibrillation. On the other hand, we want to make sure that our assessment priorities are always there and that we're using those parts of our brain to to do what you were just talking about. So, you know, the first thing I really want to talk about is the airway issues that are involved in inhalation and that superheated gas and particulate matter, the sooty stuff that you've inhaled, because that's going to do a whole bunch of things. Number one, and the most concerning, you've burned the inside of the airway often, right? I mean, this isn't just like bite into a hot piece of pizza, right? This is superheated gas in your airway. And like we know from anything else that you that you get burned or you get injured, you don't start to swell immediately, right? It hurts, it's painful, maybe you're a little hoarse, maybe you're spitting out some soot, but you're able to talk, you're able to breathe, you may not have any stridor initially, but that's something that you need to focus on. And for that person that is already at the verge of collapse or someone who's already collapsed, whether they're in respiratory or cardiac arrest or not, you need to think about that airway a little bit differently than you think about it in cardiac arrest. Because our big focus in cardiac arrest recently, and not even that recently, but since some of the significant airway trials came out, is we'll often use an extraglottic airway, right? It's quick. We don't interrupt CPR. This is a different priority, right? An extraglottic airway assumes that the rest of your airway is fine. It can sit above your glottis. You really need to get a tube through that glottis in this case. You need to have advanced life support providers that are very comfortable with intubation and you want to get that cuff tube in the trachea and you want to think that some people might even need a surgical airway so you want to make sure that you've got the protocols if you're responding to fires frequently and frankly if you're in a system that has a lot of trauma your provider should be experienced to doing surgical airways and comfortable with some kind of surgical airway method so the patient that doesn't need that immediate airway intervention they're talking to you you're doing an assessment You need to have your assessment priorities kind of thought about ahead of time, right? When you're being dispatched to a house fire where there are no inhabitants and you expect to rescue inhabitants, or if you hear about one of your own team going down in a fire, you should automatically have things in your head that you're going to assess even the most minor smoke inhalation victim for. So first, you really want to assess their level of consciousness. You want to interact with them. You want to talk to them. You want to make sure that they are not just, you know, awake, alert, and oriented times four. you want to make sure that they're making sense. They're carrying on a conversation. They're able to understand what's going on. You can, you can talk to them. They have recall of events. Because some of the first things you're going to see is mild confusion, right? That could be your first sign of significant carbon monoxide or cyanide toxicity. So that baseline assessment's really important. Obviously assess the ABCs, look in there, do a good look into the airway, look at the tongue, look for soot, listen for strider. Not something we always do, right? We think about it maybe in a creepy kid, but we're not always doing that. So listen for strider, look at the superficial burns, right? I mean, we're not talking so much about burns today, but that's a big part of fire ground care. I mean, look at those burns, think about your assessment, think about percentage body surface area burn, because that's also going to drive some of your interventions to prevent that patient from getting worse and address any of those immediate threats to life. Before we get into the treatment priorities, we want to reassess. You've gone through that initial phase, you've stopped the burning, you've looked for other injuries. You know, there was that very emotional time. And for that patient that's awake, alert, cooperative, you know, you're going to start packaging them up. You're going to think about the next steps. Do that reassessment. Ask some of those same questions again. Tell them what, you know, ask them to tell you what happened. Ask them to tell you their name. Tell you a little bit about what what happened in the in the fire and see if they're making sense. And obviously, if they start to get confused, you can ask some simpler questions. But that should be your red flag, right? That patient that's going to deteriorate, you'll often see the mental status changes first so knowing what's occurred and knowing the risks that are out there let's talk about the treatments right so again focusing on that inhalation injury protecting that airway administering high flow oxygen right this is the case right we know for decades oxygen was the therapy for everything from EMS uh, EMS agencies and fire departments and we know now that you know we kind of direct our oxygen therapy this is one of those things that you you're definitely on the oxygen right giving somebody 100% oxygen who's had an inhalation injury is already starting the treatment for carbon monoxide right that is an easy treatment and then assessing that airway and if you need to intervene on the airway doing it as early as you possibly can Then you want to think about cyanide and the effect of cyanide on the body in terms of your ability then to actually utilize that oxygen. So we need to get an IV in. We need to be prepared to give a cyanide antidote kit in addition to whatever other therapies the patient may need for burns or other injuries that have occurred. So let's give a few bullet points on the airway considerations. I've got some pictures here of airways that have swollen up if you look down to take a look at someone's cords you're trying to intubate and you see something that looks like a mass of swollen pink tissue right you get a little nervous your own heart rate goes up a little bit because you need to be prepared for that airway to be difficult right so there's a few things to take care of. Make sure you've got all the gear that you possibly have. And obviously, every agency carries different things. We're seeing more and more video laryngoscopy in EMS agencies. This is the time to use video laryngoscopy as your first choice, right? You know Your, your goal is first pass success with that ET tube. So give yourself every advantage that you have. The longer that you wait, the worse it's going to be. So for that patient that clearly needs airway management, make sure that if you've got a decent team of people, you've got someone working on the IV you've got some but you've got someone focused on that airway and is ready to manage that airway. If you're not using bougies currently, boy talk about a cheap low-tech intervention that can really help you. I'm not it's not really part of what we're talking about today. But again, think about simple things that you can have that's going to make that airway easier. And you know, if you're in the process of considering purchasing video laryngoscopy, this is a great case for it.
0: Yeah, we've gotten away from intubation being one of those really go-to skills that paramedics perform all the time. It's really easy to put on a supraglottic airway in the form of the eye gels, the King Airways, and all the things in between. But I think this is a really good time to underscore these are the patients that win when we're able to perform those ET innovations, right? So I think it's really important to really note here that training for these difficult airways is probably a good idea and to not just assume you're going to have this nice, easy look between the vocal cords and line it up. No, 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 no. You're going to have swollen pink tissue, like you said. This so is going to be very difficult.
1: Exactly. You know, what we've really done, and, and again, great for patients, right? We know we've improved outcome with supraglottic airways in people who have a normal airway to begin with, right? But it also means that paramedics maybe haven't done as many intubations as they used to have done. I think we're trying to make up for that with, with better sim labs and additional clinical experiences. But you're right. This is why endotracheal intubation and surgical airway is an important advanced life support skill, right? These are our best pre hospital providers, and we want to be able to do that when it's needed. That patient that you've been assessing especially if they're already complaining of some symptoms. They're coughing. They've got a hoarse voice. They're already confused a little bit. You need to anticipate that they're going to go into cardiac arrest. A patient who has an inhalation injury with that combination of carbon monoxide and cyanide can rapidly arrest, and they can arrest a lot more quickly than you think because they look pretty stable, but the problem is they've got this ongoing oxygen debt and as they can't deliver oxygen, they hit a threshold, and then they, they either stop breathing or they go into cardiac and respiratory arrest. When we're thinking about those patients, right, we've already started that O2 therapy. We're already treating carbon monoxide, right? That's easy. We've done whatever supportive care we need. We've got that IV in. We need to deliver cyanide antidote. For a long time, we've moved to a hydroxycobalamin-based cyanide antidote. That is just vitamin B12. It's a big dose of it, but it is vitamin B12, and it's very easy to use. And there's some simple things to remember. So when we're looking at this, that patient who's talking normal, yes, you're worried about them, great. You're going to keep monitoring that patient. That's where you're going to be reassessing. As soon as they start to deteriorate, this is why you want to have the IV in there. You want to have the meds ready to go if you need them. You want to have that index of suspicion. You've already put them on 100% O2. Now they're starting to deteriorate. They were complaining of a headache. Now they're not making sense. They're getting a little woozy. That's someone you can give them 5 grams of hydroxycobalamin right now, right? That'll hopefully prevent them from going further down that pathway to cyanide toxicity, And a person who's already got a GCS of less than 9 is signs of severe toxicity. Same thing, right? The sooner you get that in there, the better. And most places have protocols or information on the use of hydroxycobalamin for cyanide toxicity we certainly do in Michigan. So hydroxycobalamin is vitamin B12, right? This is a very clever way of having an antidote for cyanide because you've got cyanide in the bloodstream. You give this large dose of hydroxycobalamin. It scavenges that cyanide, turns it into cyanocobalamin, right, which is really relatively benign, and water, which is obviously benign, and then you're going to urinate it out. So this is a one-step antidote. That has been proven now for decades and is used all over the world, but we're still sometimes seeing opportunity that it's not being used for a variety of reasons in some of our agencies, particularly in the United States. I think a big part of what we're talking about is a deployment strategy, again, based on what we've seen that works well in agencies that have been very focused on this in the U.S. and agencies across Europe that have done this for a long time, is You know, it's great that hospitals have it. It's great that it's on some transporting ambulances, but it's one of those things that should be in, you know, like a special box on a battalion chief's vehicle or on one of the engines that you know is getting dispatched to every fire.
0: And that's the trick, right? We're talking about putting a medication on a unit that's not typically a medication carrying unit. We're trying to put it on the place that it's going to be actually utilized. Now, if you were to put this in every drug box in our area, we're talking thousands of drug boxes to go into ambulances that may encounter a smoke inhalation patient, where what we're saying is if we put these on the frontline vehicles at fire departments, the vehicles that are most likely going to be at the scene of the fire, and what is turning out to be most of these shift commander, incident commander type vehicles, whether it is a fire apparatus or an SUV unit or something like that, that's where it needs to be to be most effective for the person that needs it. So like you said, we needed a protocol. I know here locally we now have a protocol that allows us to activate it because it makes sense. I know other places are probably starting to look into that now that the evidence is very clear on that. But I think it's really important to underscore if you don't have this drug when you need it, it's really useless.
1: The point that you make about getting it to the right place, it, it's more like a, a figuring out the right logistics, right? I mean, we, we know the protocol, we know the treatment, we know the science, but getting it to the right place. You mentioned, you know, putting it on every ALS vehicle in a community. Some of those ALS vehicles may be primarily or even only used for interfacility critical care transport. So they're very highly trained medics, but they're unlikely ever to be at a fire ground. hmm so you really want it out there and again, if you know we, we got to be realistic right it, it does have fairly high cost. you might not be using it consistently all the time. hopefully hopefully you don't need to use it that often because you've you've done other things, but the fact is you're you're going to need to use it at some point and you want it where it's going to be needed.
0: Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate your time today and we'll have you get back soon.
1: All right well I appreciate what you're doing with this and thank you very much.
0: All right. Thank you to Dr. Dunn for joining me on the EMS On Air podcast. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, and episode ideas to the EMS On Air podcast team by email at jeff, that's G-E-O-F-F, at emsonair.com. Follow us on Instagram at EMS On Air. Like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please, whatever podcast platform you use, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.